We are continuing in uh, looking at the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. We began to look at that last week, starting to raise the question, what do these letters have to say to us, Princeville Presbyterian Church? That is, what, what in them applies to us as a church in this place at this time that we can be working on putting into practice, implementing, um, being aware of, praying over. Because when Jesus speaks in this way, he's speaking to the whole church and he's speaking specifically to us. This morning we're going to be looking at, well, last week what we did is we looked at the glorified Christ. The first revelation of himself in almost 40 years after his resurrection, 45 years after his resurrection, uh, where he manifests himself in all of his resurrected glory, in, in the bestowal of his honor and his majesty, being the king over all things, having all authority, shining forth in his holy beauty. And his first concern is for his church. That's his first concern. His first and primary concern was to communicate to his church the things that he was seeing and the things that he wanted his church to see. And then to show them what was taking place in the future in terms of their defense, in terms of their preservation in the face of persecution, in the face of uh, the things that were starting to well up in front of him, in front of them. So this morning we're going to begin with the first letter, and this is the letter to the church in Ephesus, This is from Revelation chapter 2, the first seven verses. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's word. Let's pray together, shall we? <clears throat> Lord, there's so much mystery that surrounds the book of Revelation, and sometimes there's mystery that surrounds even these letters. While sometimes they sound very clear to us, there's much that lay behind them. We pray that you would enable us to understand, to see the truth of it, to see the truth of it as it works out in our church, 
And Lord, bless us that we might walk more faithfully in the way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, last week we started by looking at the glorified Christ and his majesty as he shows himself with a face shining like the light, his hair white as wool, his eyes burning, holding the seven stars in his hands and walking among the lampstands. Here is a Christ who is victorious. Here is a Christ who is going to undertake battle and he's going to do it with the confidence that he will conquer his enemies. He has conquered his enemies. And his church is going to have to face some battles, and they're going to have to conquer their enemies as well. And so, in, in telling John to write and dictating these letters, Jesus is saying, I, I know my church. I know my church, and I have a concern for my church that she continue to grow in holiness that she continue to grow in holiness. And for each church, there are particular circumstances and the things that the Lord observes prod her unto greater faithfulness. We're going to be taking a look at that. What I want to point out first is that all of the letters contain this general pattern. Every one of the letters contain this general pattern. So there is this image of Christ, this manifestation of who he is. In this case, it's the seven stars and the walking amidst the lampstands. Then there is a commendation of some kind, a recognition of the church's character, the good things that are going on in the church that he wants to affirm. So that church understands what it's doing correctly. Then there is a rebuke. Now, we should be careful not to think that a rebuke is a bad thing. Sometimes people say, well, you know, if if we get rebuked by someone, we might think, well, they don't like me. They they don't like me. They don't like what I'm doing. Well, no, that's that's not what's at stake here. It's not a matter of not liking something. When there is a rebuke, it's because the Lord is prodding us onto a better path, a better walk with him. A rebuke from the Lord Jesus Christ is love. A rebuke from the Lord Jesus Christ is love. I would rather have a rebuke from the Lord Jesus Christ than the sweet kiss of somebody who actually doesn't care about me. You understand? And there are so many things in our lives that need to be changed. And so occasionally we need to be rebuked. And it's a good thing. Because God says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Not as a command, but as a declaration. If God has redeemed us through the blood of his Son, then he started out by saying, you shall be holy, for I'm holy. So as he works in our lives, even in rebuking us, we have to hear the declaration of love that you shall be holy even as I am holy. It's a mercy when he does that. After the rebuke, then there's an exhortation or a solution to their issue, whatever that issue is. And then there's a warning or a consequence for disobedience. That is, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. Sometimes by natural consequence. You know, if you don't stay this side of the fence, you're going to fall off the cliff and gravity is going to take over. That's how we have to hear that. 
Jesus loves his church. The things that he says are not a rejection of his church. It's a preservation and a strengthening of the church. Okay? And then finally, there's a promise that he sets before each church. Now, this, this, this is a literary pattern. These several things, and we're going to see this repeated over and over again. Some of this is so that we can remember it better. For example, as you're reading through the book of Genesis, there's a phrase that keeps showing up. These are the generations of... Eleven times that occurs through the, uh, through the book of Genesis. And it actually begins, these are the generations of the heaven and earth. And then it goes on and says, these are the generations of Adam. And then these are the generations of Seth and of Noah and of Abraham and of Joseph. Okay? So that what we're, what we're, we're given this literary pattern so we can remember what's going on in the book. Or in the case of the book of Amos, where the Lord uses the literary device for three sins of a certain, certain country, and for four, I will render my judgment and I will not revoke it. For three sins of Damascus and for four... I will not revoke its punishment. For three sins of Syria and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. And then he eventually works into Israel. So it's a way of just remembering what's going on. So this literary pattern is going to keep showing up, and we need to uh, give heed to it. It's for easy remembrance. But there's a second thing here that I need to point out before we get into this letter. And that's right in verse um, 7 where Jesus himself says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's interesting. Jesus himself is dictating the letter, but it's an understanding that the Holy Spirit is speaking to the churches of Christ. So this letter that's to the Ephesians, to the Ephesian church, is not exclusively for Ephesus. It's not restricted to this one church at this place at this time in history. This is to the churches. And not just to the seven churches that are being written to. It's for the whole of Christ's church through the whole of time. All of Christ's church through all of time. So it's to the churches which is why we have to pay attention to it. This is specifically a word to us. Okay? And it's going, to be, it's going to be repeated in every single letter. So we have to pay attention. All right? So, what is being said? <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Ephesus is remarkable as a city. It was probably the biggest city in Asia Minor. It was the wealthiest city in Asia Minor. Uh, Every Roman governor who came to rule in Asia Minor stopped first at the city of Ephesus, even though the capital city was Pergamum, further, further inland. It was a city of commerce. It was a city where uh, a lot of roads, it was like a crossroads, 
And it was a city in which there were high religious concerns. The temple to Diana, the temple to Artemis, was kept in Ephesus. And it was considered to be one of the great wonders of the world at that time. So here you have a religious center, you have a commercial center, you have a governmental center, you have all of these intersections of these large elements of culture. Ephesus was an extremely important place because whoever passed through would somehow come into contact with the gospel. Okay? Ephesus was important. Paul first came to Ephesus on his second missionary journey after he had been driven out of the city of Corinth. He spent uh, two years there. Well, first of all, he stopped by briefly with Priscilla and Aquila. And then he came back and he spent two years teaching and preaching among the Ephesians. Um, The New Testament contains one letter to the church in Ephesus. And it is the second heaviest theological letter in Paul's collection. It deals with the divine counsels of God, the elective purpose of God, the establishment of his church in Christ before the foundation of the world. It deals with deep theological themes. The Ephesians were introduced to great theology when they first started out. And then the church fell into decline. Timothy was sent to Ephesus. I sent you to Ephesus so that you could put elders back into place. And then we have this letter to the Ephesians where Jesus gives them a rebuke and a warning. And eventually, the church disappears from Ephesus. There's no testimony. You realize that we are a reformed outpost on the northern edge of central Illinois? This church. This church is a reformed outpost on the northern edge of central Illinois. There are no reformed churches from here up to Rockford. That's an important place to be. It's an important obligation to have. Are we going to make it? Are we going to survive? Ephesus didn't survive. It had great theology. It had great theology. It didn't survive. Do you believe your theology in this church? Should it survive? Will it survive? We need to pay attention to that. We need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is showing himself to be the one who holds the stars in his hand and who walks amid the lampstands. He walks among us. He knows us. He is present among us. Right now, in this room, by his spirit, Jesus is here. You know, we can go through a weekly exercise of worship and it kind of feels like a routine. We sort of just do the routine, right? Forgetting that Jesus is here. He's here. 
to encourage us, to comfort us, to put our, our hearts at peace, to, to lead us further along. He's the holder of the stars. He, he, the, the angels are the messengers. He said these are the messengers of the church. It could be the spirit of the church. It could be the spirit that resides upon all of us and we all are the messengers. There's a number of ways it's been understood. But the fact is, Christ holds the stars. And so, He is the one who holds the spirit of the church in His hands. So what does He see as He looks into this Ephesian church? He says, I know your works. I perceive them. I understand your works. I understand the things that you are doing, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, and you've tested, who call, tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you've found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you've not grown weary. You know what? That applies here. There are some people who have toiled and labored and it feels as though it's just a marathon run and it just keeps going. You've just hit the 12,000 meter mark and you've got another, uh, tw- another 12,000 meters to go. And you just feel like you're halfway through this marathon and it's toil. But you know what? Christ sustains you. Christ is the one who carries you forward. And so <clears throat> he knows what we do. He knows about Awana. He understands about Awana. He cares about Awana. He cares about our Sunday school classes and all the other ministries we get involved in, the pantry and, um, and the women's uh, study and uh, the various, various weeks of, of faithful worship that take place. He knows it. He understands us. He understands our situation. And these things are right and good and Christ approves them. But then he has a rebuke, and the rebuke is interesting. He says this, I've got this against you, verse 4, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Notice he does not say, you've forgotten your love. Notice he does not say, you've drifted from your love. You know, the way that a canoe drifts down the stream. He says, you've abandoned the love you have. At first, I'll make you bet Ephesus didn't think about that. I'll make you bet Ephesus didn't think like that at all. They were holding on to their doctrine. They were faithful about that doctrine. They were testing people who didn't have that doctrine. They were looking at those people who said, well, yes, I'm a teacher of the word. And they come and they bring some other doctrine than the gospel. They held on to it, right? It's like, It's like, if we were responsible for making sure that doctors were really faithful to being the doctor they were supposed to, that they had the right training, they had the right ongoing education, they had the right skills, you know, we'd want to to make sure that all that was in place, but then if we ourselves were doctors and we stopped being what we were supposed to be because we're holding on to these standards real tightly... That's not going to help anybody, right? And so the the commendation is you're holding on to the teaching. Amen. Good for you. But there's something missing. 
You've lost your first love. You've abandoned your first love. This first love is easily summarized by the words of our Lord Jesus Christ when he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's the call. Now here's the thing. It is ever a temptation for Christians everywhere to hold on to their truth and to abandon the one thing that marks us out as truly the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that he said? All men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. What? All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And at the point at which we stop having love for one another, we cease to be a church. Do you know that? The failure at this key point means that the gospel as good news for sinners can no longer be heard if we don't have love for one another. And so love for God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love for one another as neighbors, as members of one another are critical. Otherwise, we cease to be a recognizable church. It doesn't matter how good our theology is. It doesn't matter. Look, I am, I, I am a Westminster Confession guy. I'm a Westminster Confession and Catechisms guy. What does Paul say? You can have all knowledge. You can have all understanding. And if you don't have love, what are you? You are a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. That's it. Now, we went through a whole bunch of sermons on what love is out of the Gospel of John, and then how does that work out in community life by looking at Ephesians chapter 4. Okay? Maybe there's a need to go back and review those passages. Maybe there's a need to go back and review those sermons. But it's that kind of love that makes us a true church. That makes us a recognizable church. And so what Jesus is saying to the Ephesians is, you love God, you love God's people. That's how it was at the beginning. What happened? That's what Jesus is saying. And so he says, remember what you did at first. Repent, and then do those works you did at first. We have to go back and reflect. What was, my, what was your life like when you first became a Christian? Was there a thrill? Were you excited about being a Christian? Was this something that you said, Oh my goodness, my life really is different. And I'm connected to people in a way that I've never been connected before. That's what we have to remember, and that's what we have to return to. 
What did we do? We had fellowship with them. We talked with them. We shared Jesus with them. That's what we have to do. We have to return to those first works. That's what Christ calls us to. Here's the warning. He says, if not, if you don't do this, if you don't remember, repent, and do the works you did at first, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. To remove the lampstand means that both in the near future and in the far future, when Christ returns, they would totally lose their status as a church. The status of a church is not determined by its denominational connections. The status of a church is not determined by its building. The status of a church is not determined by the sign out front. It's not determined by the qualifications of the pastor, necessarily, although you want to have good qualifications. It's determined by holding to the truth and doing these works of love that we did at first. To remove the lampstand is to, to cease to serve as a light and thus cease to be a church. Jesus gives them additional encouragement. This I have... This, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't actually know who the Nicolaitans are. But we know this. They departed from the truth. The likelihood is that they were Christians and claimed to be Christians who departed from the truth because they wanted to do their own thing. And Jesus hated it, whatever it was. And if we read verses 14 and 15 further on in the chapter, which we're going to come to in a couple of weeks, The Nicolaitans are accused of doing the things that Balaam did. You know what Balaam did? He was a pagan prophet. And he just couldn't curse Israel. He really wanted to curse Israel, but he couldn't because the Lord wouldn't let him. So what he did is he found a way to allow the people of Israel to step happily into sexual immorality. That was it. The people were defiled through sexual immorality. Look, the works of the Nicolaitans are still going on. Do you know how many people claim to be Christian and they're involved in sexual immorality? Young people, old people, it doesn't make any difference. The culture that we're surrounded by legitimizes it. And so we think, well, you know, who's going to do anything about this? Jesus will. He'll remove the lampstand, and we will lose our light. Beloved, we need to place a guard over our hearts always that we would do those things that Christ calls us to. We need one another. If we're struggling with that, let's at least admit it. I'm struggling with sexual immorality. Would you please pray for me? You know, your minister struggles with that kind of stuff all the time. We're battered by it. We're battered by it from the internet. We're battered by it from movies. We're battered by it from books. Every place. We really need one another. We need one another for prayer. We need one another for support. We need one another for encouragement. We need to be rebuked by one another. Because that's love. But 
If we hate those things that the Nicolaitans do, then Jesus also hates those things. All right, so let me summarize here. It's good to have great doctrine, and it's good to hold on to good doctrine, but if all we're doing is holding on to good doctrine and we don't have love, and we're not walking purely before the Lord, we're not very much of a church. We might be a great educational institution, but we're not very much of a church. And so let's place a guard against whatever the pressures of the culture are to walk with the Lord in holiness. And, you know, it's too easy to just kind of, you know, ease the road for other people who claim to be Christians and so they're in a church somewhere and they're still living in sexual immorality and we kind of turn a blind eye to it. We don't do anything about it. Why? Because we're embarrassed about the testimony of Jesus? We cease to be a light. Christ loves his church. He loves his church. He shed his blood for the church. He shed his blood for you and me. Let us not compromise the holiness and the sanctification that he gave to us by kind of letting the threads of the culture slip into our hearts and our minds. Let's not do that. He loves us too much. Here's the promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We know that the tree of life was in the middle of the garden, and it was, there was also another one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we lost our access to the tree of life because we were interested in eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That principle still applies. That's what Jesus is saying. That principle still applies. And therefore, if we wish to eat of the tree of life, we need to deny the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what it means to conquer. The tree of life was lost to us, and it's in eating the forbidden fruit that mankind declared that it would not love the Lord with all its heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so the call is to return to that first love, to reserve ourselves for the Lord in purity, in holiness of body and mind, to return to the Lord and walk with him devotedly and faithfully, and to let his testimony come from our mouth that other people might know that this is what the Lord expects. Do we see ourselves in the Ephesian church? If we do, let us remember, repent, and do the things that we did at first when we came to know the Lord. And may he grant it to us to hear and to conquer that we may eat of the tree of life. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord Jesus, search our hearts and know us and try us and test us and see if there be any wicked way in us And then, Lord, we would plead with you, lead us in the way of everlasting. 
Grant it to us to love you again in the fullest measure as we loved you at first when we first met you and first came to know you. And Lord, may we give testimony to the great love that you've given to us through your cross, through your shed blood, and by the giving of your Holy Spirit. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Beloved, I'm going to ask if you are able to please stand. Let us confess our faith in God as we uh, come to the table. As we do this, we may not hear it, but we are adding our voice to the voices of those who have gone ahead of us for two millennia in testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. I've been reading uh, lately from the Gospel of Mark, and I'm always impressed with how much there is like this action going on from the first page of the Gospel of Mark right on through to the last page. And yet part of the action slows down to where Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room on that last night before he's betrayed, and he gives the instructions that the whole Christian church is to practice while we are gathered. As they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. As often as, we're supposed to, as often as we do this, we're supposed to do it in the, in the knowledge and the remembrance of our Lord Jesus. The fact that he lived a life and he basically gave his body to us in obedience to the Father. All of his obedience was to satisfy the total law of God. Does God expect us to exhibit compassion to other people? Yes, and it's perfectly fulfilled in Christ. 
Does God expect us to uh, live a perfect life of uh, clear speech? Yes, and it's perfectly satisfied in Christ. So that the full satisfaction of God's law is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in perfect holiness and in innocence, our Lord Jesus Christ was condemned to death as a criminal. And as he went to the cross, he went to bear sins, not his own. When we take the bread, we're saying, by Christ's life I live. And when we drink the cup, we are saying, by Christ's death I live. You need his active obedience and his offering himself up as a sacrifice. That is the remembrance. Our Lord Jesus came He gave himself, he died, resurrected, ascended, and he's coming again. And every time we take of the table, we're recognizing that. For those of you who might not know the Lord Jesus, I would ask that you please not partake of the table. It's for the family. It's for the family who knows the Lord. And therefore, I would ask that you let the elements pass. But understand this. It's an invitation. It's an invitation for you to consider the life of our Lord Jesus Christ further and to say, I live exclusively by his obedience, his active obedience and his passive obedience. And turn to the Lord and receive him as your Savior. Let's ask the Lord to bless these elements, commit them to his purpose. our Lord, you've told us to do this, and so we obey. We obey because it's a blessing. Not only give us the sign of your life, Lord, even as we look at it here, but seal it to our hearts that we know that we participate in your life and in your love. Help us to understand that. And may we encourage and assure one another that this, this is eternal life, and the victory by which we may eat of the tree of life. In your name we pray, amen.